every year about this time should be narrated by Morgan Freeman. It'll be brilliant. So, yeah, you all are here. That's great. I'm glad you're here. This is, this is fantastic. So, hey, um, we're going to do something a little different today. We're going to take a risk. Um, here's what I need you to do. I need you to pull out your smartphones or your phones, whatever. smart. They're all smart now, right? Pull out your phones. Open up whatever internet browser you have. Go to www.menti.com and then put in that code. Um, now, we're going to do something interactive today, um, but I got to set some ground rules um, because I know y'all, right? And I know me, which is if I have the opportunity to write something that might show up on, a, on the screen in front of everybody, you know, like my 12-year-old brain kicks in and goes, what can I write, you know? So no names, right? Number one, don't, don't mention any names. Don't get political, stuff like that. There'll be a question coming up here in a second. But in the meantime, you can go to this little website, enter that code, 10207756, and there'll be a question that you're going to have a chance to ask here in just a second. And we're going to do a little uh, crowdsourced thing, right? A little group think together. So let me pray for us, and then we'll dive in. Jesus, this morning, we just thank you. We praise you that, like, we just get to sing the songs we just get to, that we just sung, Lord, those songs I know, it's like Christy said, they just echo in my heart and in my mind this morning that you paid it all. And we praise the one who paid our debt, right, who raises our life up from the dead. And so, Jesus, that's who you are. And this is a season, this is a time when we get to celebrate the freedom that you bring to us, the freedom from sin and death, uh, the freedom in a new life and a kingdom life. And Jesus, today I know that, that we are, a lot of us are weary. A lot of us are tired. Uh, we've been carrying the burden of the last couple of years on our shoulders and everything that we've, we've dealt with as a, as a family, as a community, but Lord, just also as a planet. Uh, and so today, Father, I pray that on this kind of first week of this thing called spring break, that we would just get a chance to, to kind of stop and breathe, stop and catch our breath and rest a little bit. Lord, we praise you that in your word we find these rhythms of life that we're intended to live. And God, today I pray that you would teach, teach us and speak to us through your word in new ways. Uh, Jesus, we love you and we pray all this in your name. Everybody said. All right, so if you pulled this up, you know there's a super loaded question. And here's what it is. Here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about how you'd answer this question, and it's this. What is the greatest challenge that you face uh, when it comes to living the, the, the with God life? What's the greatest challenge that you face? So go ahead and answer that. If, you're, if you've got the, great. So we're already getting some answers coming through, so you're going to get to see these things come through. So these are the things that we would say are the greatest challenges that we face when it comes to living, living the with God life. Comfort, FOMO, fear of missing out, being too busy, failure, my wife, um, I'm glad there's no names mentioned, right? So discipline, pride, comfort, consistency, being comfortable, sin, time, distractions. Keep going. We can keep going. Uh, I know there's, there's, there's more here, right? Um, so you see kind of what, what, what we deal with and what we have to navigate, the, the kind of prioritizing time. That's a great one. Um, there are lots of peer influences. I see that up there. That's also a really good one. Uh, there are a lot of things when it comes to, like, the things that we face in our lives. As many people that are in this room today, there are probably the same amount of challenges, unique challenges we face, right, when it comes to growing and living in this with God life, right, that Jesus makes possible through the gospel. There's a lot of things that we have to deal with. And some of those things are external factors, right? Like it's, the, it's being too busy. It's our time. It's our, it's our schedule. Some of these things are, are internal. Like one of these things up here says pride or, or my attitude, right? Some of these things are we, we seek after the wrong things sometimes. Again, I'm looking up here going, I see comfort. I see things like that. There are things that, that pull us away from. There are things that slow us down. There are things that hinder us from being able to live this with 
with God life. There are challenges we face. There are obstacles we have to cross. There are things in our lives that we have to deal with. And this is just a snapshot, right? That's a snapshot of what's going on in this room. Now, my guess is if we were going to ask this same question outside of these walls, if you're going to go to your office today or maybe your, your, your neighbors this week or maybe other people that you know, friends and family that are followers of Jesus and you ask them this same question, my guess is there's probably going to be a mixed bag, right? We're going to get a similar kind of mixed bag as to what's up here right now. I mean, the reality is there are a lot of challenges. There are a lot of challenges we face when it comes to living the with God life, and they come in all forms. They come in all shapes or sizes, right? But here's the, there, there's one challenge. There's one challenge that every single one of us that we deal with, all of us, all of us face the same challenge in one way, shape, or form, or another. We're all influenced by one challenge, all of us, maybe without even knowing it, and that's this. It's the challenge of hurry, we live in a time, right, our culture, the culture that exists today is a culture of hustle and hurry. And it's actually becoming more and more and more defined. Like if you read, you can go and Google this, you can, you can search articles and all that kind of stuff. The, the hurry culture or hustle culture has now become a thing. And it's interesting because I read a bunch of stuff on this, I read a bunch of research on it this week. Like a few years ago, just backtrack maybe 10 or 15 years ago, when you would watch like advertisements for luxury car companies or luxury watches, like a Rolex watch or something like that, those commercials would show people at leisure, right? So you would have like the really nice car sitting by the beach and the people, you know, going for a walk on the beach. Or you'd have, you know, the person wearing the Rolex sitting on their yacht, right, relaxing. Those, you fast forward to today, and those same companies are still advertising. But if you look at the way they advertise, if you look at the way they advertise in terms of what success looks like and what it means to be successful and what it means to, to kind of live in this life of success, those same companies, when they advertise today, they're fast-paced ads. They don't advertise leisure. They don't advertise rest. They don't advertise vacation. They don't advertise the good life. They advertise a hurried life, a hustled life, a busy life. Right? So instead of seeing someone sitting on their boat in the Caribbean, right, you see someone leading a meeting in those ads. Right? Or you see someone driving at night in a suit, like they're dressed up, whatever, like they're going to, to meet their coworkers or something like that. Like, it's crazy when you look at what hustle and hurry culture has done to our society, and a lot of times without us really even knowing it. And it's crazy when you go back, if you just Google ads for like things like that from, from 15 or 20 years ago and compare them to what they look like today, it's astonishing. So here's the thing, the thing about hurry, the thing about hurry culture and hustle culture, the reason that we talk about the challenges we face to, to living the with God life, it's this, hurry just isn't a challenge to living in this relationship with Jesus, growing in this relationship with God through Christ. Hurry and hustle, it's a direct threat, right? So we have to begin to shift the way we see things, not as, well, this is just more, it's more than just an obstacle, this is more than just a hurdle. It's more than something we have to figure out our way around or through or up or over, right? This really is a direct threat. John Ortberg writes a book about a conversation that he had with his mentor, Dallas Willard, who I'm a <clears throat> big Dallas Willard fan. I love Dallas with the way that he thinks and, and about spiritual disciplines, and we could talk about I could nerd out on that all day, right? But, but John Ortberg asked Dallas this question. Right? It's a question that probably all of us have probably thought to ask at some point in our lives, and that was this. He asked his mentor, what do I need to do to become the me I want to be? It's a good question. 
That's a good question. And maybe, maybe you've thought that question. Maybe you've never asked that question out loud before. I would just challenge you. Think through this, right? Think through this. What, what do I need to do to become the me that I want to be? Now, if you, ask, you sit down and ask your mentor that question, or you ask someone wise that question, you could probably expect, you know, this really wise philosophical answer. Well, John tells this story about asking Dallas Willard this question over the phone. And so there was a really long pause. And he thought, well, maybe the line dropped. Maybe we got disconnected. And he looked. No, they're still connected. And he said, after a long pause, Dallas answered, this was his answer. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life, he said. There is nothing else. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. And then just to reemphasize, he said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And I've looked, as I studied this week, I I found other kind of quotes and, and people that, that would echo what, what, what Dallas Willard has to say. Corey Tinboom says this, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. I think that's the truth. And if you're still not convinced, Carl Jung, who is the, the famous psychologist, right, he, he says this, he says, hurry is not of the devil, hurry is the devil. So we think about it, it's a direct threat. And the fact is, We've gotten kind of swept up in this current of hurry and hustle in our life. And and some people say, again, there's really fascinating information on how do we get here. Because typically when you find yourself in a spot where you're not supposed to be or a spot that doesn't feel good, it's it's not the way it's meant to be, you ask, how do we get here? How do we get to this place where everything moves a million miles an hour? How do we get to this place where we, where we crash land into weeks like this, spring break weeks, where we get to take vacations? And vacations really aren't vacations. They're recovery, right? How do we get to this place? Some people say that it began in 200 B.C., when the invention, when the sundial was invented. It was the first opportunity for people to be able to tell time and to kind of section out the day in hours. So the sundial was invented around 200 B.C. So some people point to that as the point where, like, that's kind of where everything changed. We started to be able to measure time. Others would say that this hustle and hurry culture started in 1370 when the first mechanical clock tower was built in Germany. Right? So the, for, the, for the very first time, you had a clock tower in a city, Cologne, Germany, right, where, where it would ring, and it would ring out, on the hour. So now you're, you weren't necessarily living your life by the sun. You were living your life by 12 hours in the day or 12, 24 hours in the day. Some people point to 1879, right? And that was when Edison invented the light bulb. And so, the, so the, we, we look at the invention of the light bulb. It was like, this is like a modern miracle. This is a modern day. Like, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a fantastic invention, but here's what it did, right? With the, when the light bulb was invented in 1879, you didn't have to work when the sun was up. You could actually start to work when the sun was down. You could actually work at night for the very first time. And this is crazy. So this is crazy statistics or crazy research in this. Before 1879, when Edison invented the light bulb, the average person got 11 hours of sleep a night. Crazy. And people were like, take me back to 1878 right? Take me, they got, the average person, before the light bulb was invented, the average person slept 11 hours a night. Now, in 1879, you could point to that that was the point where that starts to drop to where now, in 2022, the average American sleeps six hours a night. Almost half, right? Almost cut in half. Some people, when it comes to this hustle and hurry culture, they point to the 1960s. In the 1960s, blue laws 
started to disappear, right? And, and you started to have businesses that were open on the weekends. You started to have businesses that were open a little bit later. In fact, in the 1960s, 7-Eleven, the chain 7-Eleven, was the first one opened, and it was the first business, it was the first chain business to be open seven days a week until 11 p.m. That's where 7-Eleven comes from. First time, first business to be open every single day of the week and also until 11 o'clock at night. That had never happened before. But again, I think one of the most significant points in history, you go, how did we get here? How did we get to this place where we move a million miles an hour? I think you can point to the year 2007. Anybody got a guess? What happened in 2007? iPhone. That's exactly what happened. In 2007, Steve Jobs unleashed the iPhone into the world, and everything changed. John Mark Comer says this. He says, when the history books are written, they're going to point to 2007 as an inflection point on par with 1440. Again, I'm throwing a lot of dates at you. If you know what this is, you're going to kill Jeopardy at some point, right? Anyway, I remember this sermon where Brad talked about, like, all these different dates in history. You're going to crush it, and you're welcome, right? 1440 was the, was the year that Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press, Right? It changed everything. It set the stage for the Protestant Reformation in Europe. It set the stage for enlightenment. And together, like that, that printing press, it changed Europe and it changed the rest of the world. We talk about Jesus in Christian churches in large part due to 1440. Right? And I think history, historians will look back on 2007 at the invention and release of the iPhone and go, it's kind of like that. That's when everything changed. John Mark Comer, he finishes his quote. He says, ever since then... We, for every kind of reason, good and bad, we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. I think that's true. And I see it all over the place. I see it in my own life, personally, right? I see it on our faces. I hear it in conversations. Well, how do you greet someone? When they say, hey, how you doing? I'm good, but I'm busy, right? How many of us say that? How many of us think that? How many of us, that's, the, that's our response when someone asks us, how you doing? Oh, man, we're, we're doing good, just real busy right now. We've distracted ourselves into spiritual oblivion, and it's everywhere. And here's what I've learned, is right, there's a deep ache in all of us for a life that is different than the one that we're living. And I know, I know because I feel that. I feel that there's got to be a better way, there's got to be a different way. And my guess is, most of us at some point in this room, we've felt that too in the last couple of years. So the question is this, how do we change? How do we change this? How do we shift how do we do this? How do we stop? How do we stop this hustle and hurry culture? How do we ruthlessly eliminate hurry and hustle from our lives so that, so that we can grow deep roots in Jesus? If you've got your Bibles in front of you, Psalm 32 is where we're going to be. If you've got your Bibles in front of you, open up to Psalm 32. If you need a Bible, if you've got some in the back, they're free. You can have them. Here's what Psalm 32 said. This is a Psalm that David wrote. It says this, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, David says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. And then we see this word selah. This word selah shows up. And then next, David says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and, and, and I didn't try to cover up my iniquity. I didn't try to hide what was broken in my life. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And what happens? You forgave the iniquity of my sin. And there it is again, Selah. Therefore, David says, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you can be found. And surely in that point, the rush of great waters won't even reach us. 
And he says, God, you're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And there's that word again, Selah. That's kind of a rule of thumb when you read the Bible. If you see something, get repeated. If you see something get repeated or something shows up more, more and more often in just a handful of verses, it's probably really important. And what do we see pop up a few times in this specific psalm? It's this word, Selah. Now, depending on what translation you read, that was the ESV. Selah may be a part of the verses, right? It may be kind of in there. Some of us, like some different translations, kind of push it out to the side, like on the side of the page. But here's the deal. When we see th- this word, Selah, it shows up 71 times in the book of Psalms. 71 times we see it pop up. Three times it shows up in the book of Habakkuk. And here's what it means. Here's what the word Selah means. It means to hold up, to suspend, or to pause. That's what it means. Hold up, rest, suspend, pause. But here's how I want us to break it down today, right? Selah is this. Selah, this kind of, it forms an acronym for us. It literally means this, to stop, exhale, lean in, ask, and here. And so I'm going to unpack this a little bit for us, right, and what this looks like. So the first thing we see is to stop. This one's not very hard, right? It literally means to physically stop and be still, like the song we just sang, oh, be still and behold him, right? I think a lot of times the reason that we don't behold God at working in our midst is because we move too fast and we don't see him. We don't take time to literally and physically stop what we're doing, to stop our bodies, to be still, to stop our minds and be still. The next one is, is exhale, right? Well, why is that? Like, that seems kind of a strange one. Like, I don't know about you, but like after you've had a rough day or after you've had a long day and you finally come home and you get to sit on the couch, I don't know about you, but for me, it's like I sit on the couch and usually it's like a, <sighs> right? Or after you've had a long meeting or a rough meeting or, or whatever it may be, like there's this part of us that kind of breathes out the stress and breathes out the the junk and breathes out just kind of the stuff that we had to navigate that day. And so when we breathe out, we breathe out what's in here, right? It's not just the idea of exhaling, right? It's not just the, the act of breathing in and breathing out. When we talk about exhaling, we're talking about letting God see what's going on in our lives, letting God see what's happening in our hearts. We're not bottling up the things that we're feeling. And we see David just do this, We see David do this in Psalm 32. It's like, I'm not gonna hold this in anymore. It's like when I tried to shut up all of the stuff that I needed to confess to God, it didn't work out so well. So I mean, there was like, like, it like made my bones weary. And and it felt like, it felt like oppressive, like the heat of the summer. And so I need to let that stuff out. Instead of holding it in, what David does is, here's the truth of my heart, God. Here's what's going on in my life. Here's what I'm feeling. And the next one is lean in, right? And to lean in, when you lean into something, you kind of expect it, right? When you start to kind of sit up on the edge of your seat, when you start to lean into what somebody is saying, right, you literally change your body posture to expect something from whoever it is that you're chatting with. And that's the same way for us here. When it comes to leaning in, we are expectant that God's going to show up. In Selah, it means this, that we change our body's posture from passive, which is just bleh, to active, but God, I want to lean into your presence because you're here. I want to lean into your spirit because your spirit is at work within me. There's something about when we take on a posture of expectancy with God. And one of my counselors one time used to kind of taught me a different way of praying, right? When, when you pray, there's, when you put your palms out like this, you, you sit down and you lean forward and you put your palms out as if to expect something from God. A lot of times the way we pray is like this. 
right? Which is like, I got it. I'm holding on to it. God, I just want you to bless it, right? A lot of times we pray like this. Like, I, I have what I need, God. I think I have a good idea. I've got a firm grip on the plan that I have for my life. God, I just need you to tell me that my plan is okay. But what does it look like when we do this? When we, when we lean in and we open up our palms, we open up our hands and we hold our palms out to expect something from God. It says this, God, I know you're here. God, I know you're gonna show up. God, I know you have what's best for me and I want to lean into that. I want to expect that. And then from that place, what we do is we ask we ask God to get involved in our lives, right? I think a lot of times it's like we bring, God, we bring God our problems and we bring God our solutions and we never ask him to step into the midst of it. We never ask him to get involved in this. But when we lean in and we're expecting that he's gonna show up, the next thing for us to do is, God, I need you to get involved in this situation. You already are, but I'm inviting you into it. And again, David just walked us through this. In the midst of whatever you're dealing with, in the midst of whatever you're walking through, when you ask God, when you ask God to jump in, you get him involved. You ask him for what you need. You ask God for the truth about who he says you are. Right, because hustle and hurry culture, it's gonna, t- it's gonna try to convince you that you are all of these different things. And if you don't do all of these different things, then you are a failure, If you don't do all these different things, then you're never going to add up to much. When you begin to lean into God's presence and you ask him to show you the truth, you ask him from a father's perspective, Father God, tell me who I am. How do you see me? You ask him about the truth of who you are. You ask him about the truth of who he is. And I think the crazy thing is, you know, a lot of times we, we spend time talking to God and telling him about the things that we deal with. We talk to God and we tell him about our stress. We talk to God and we tell him about our anxiety. We talk to God and we tell him about our worries. But as we begin to ask God the truth and seek the truth from him, what we then begin to do is we start to tell God, we start to tell our anxiety about God. It flips. Instead of telling God about my anxiety, which he knows about, I'm gonna tell my anxiety about him. Instead of telling my stress, which he knows about, I'm gonna tell my stress about him. Here's the truth of who my God is my worries, my conflict, the things that I deal with, instead of me having to tell him about those things he already knows, now I get to tell those things about the truth of who he is because I asked him to get involved. And then the last thing we do is we hear, we listen. We listen to and we listen for God. And I love this. Last week, last Sunday in our men's group uh, on on 8 8 a.m. this this past Sunday, a couple Sundays ago, uh, Drew Spurrier said something that I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm writing that down. He said this, God gave you one mouth and two ears for a reason. Right? Use them proportionately. I think sometimes, church, sometimes the reason that we don't hear God speak, whether it's through his word, whether it's through a thought, whether it's through the Holy Spirit moving in us, the reason that we can't hear God speak is sometimes we don't slow down long enough to be able to listen. And so when we say la, when we stop, when we exhale, when we lean in, when we ask, and when we hear, when we seek to listen, things happen, right? God speaks. We find that he's present. And if you read Psalms, you can see this is a regular part of David's rhythm of life. And for the, for the most part, the, the Psalms that David wrote, they are raw and they are unfiltered and they are real. I mean, David wrote songs and poems when, in moments of victory and in moments of loss, David wrote songs and poems when he was joyful, when he was mourning. David's family was nuts. I mean, David's family went crazy. I mean, David had to, had to fight a war, essentially, against his own son who tried to overthrow him. 
I mean, you talk about just some crazy things that happened in David's life. And in the midst of those crazy things happening, David, he would go to God in prayer. He would go to God with songs and poems. That's how he expressed himself. That's how he got that stuff out of his heart, out of his head, and onto paper, right? And so the craziest moments, some of the craziest parts in David's life, we find that there are moments in the midst of all of that where he sailors. He stops. And in all of that craziness, there are moments where he pauses and he knows that those who will read this, the musicians that will perform these songs, the people who will read these poems, he asks us to do the same. He pauses and he asks us to do the same, to hold up, to stop. And for me, it's critical when you start to read these Psalms, you, you notice when these moments where David says, Selah, there's moments where these take place. I mean, just look back at Psalm 32. Just look back. If you still got your Bible open, look back at Psalm 32. David says, listen, when, when I kept silent and I held my sin in and I didn't confess it, my bones were wasting away, my strength dried up like in the heat of the summer, and then what happens? Selah, stop, pause, rest. David says, don't run for this moment. This moment where you feel like your bones are wasting away and it's because you haven't confessed. You haven't shared what's going on in your heart to, to God. He already knows. And he, David says, I know, I know this is not a comfortable spot to be in. It's not a comfortable spot to be in where it feels like your bones are wasting away. But David says this, do not busy or hurry yourself out of this space. Why? Because look what happens next. So I was in this space where my bones are wasting away. And he says, I acknowledged my sin. That's what happens when he comes out of that pause. Like he took time to stop and think about why he was feeling the way he was feeling and what was going on in his life. And he realized, oh yeah, there's all this junk in here that I need to go to my heavenly father and say, hey, I gotta share this with you. And that's what happens because he stopped and paused and he thought about it. He says, I acknowledge my sin, which I love this. Catch this, okay, don't miss it. David didn't share anything with God that God didn't already know about. It was David that had to acknowledge his sin. God's going, hey, I already know. David had to be the one to say, I acknowledge that there is sin in my life. Now, do you think David could have figured that out had he not stopped and paused? You think David would have landed in that place had he not gone, Ugh. See, when David owns his mess, here's what happens. He says, you forgave me. God, you forgave me. All of those things that I was holding in, all of that shame, all of that guilt, all that stuff I didn't want to admit and own, when I finally gave it to you, you forgave me. And then what, is, what, is, what happens? He sailors again, stop. Stop, pause, and rest in God's forgiveness. David says, don't run from this moment. What happens when we own the stuff, the mess, the junk in our lives, and we bring it to God? God forgives us. He says, I'm going to take the weight of that shame. I'm going to take the weight of that guilt. I'm going to take the debt of that sin, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it on the cross, and it's dead. Jesus dealt with that. And then finally, David says, hey, listen, everybody should do this. When we acknowledge our sin and we receive forgiveness, David says it's like great, great rushing waters can't even get to us. He says God hides and preserves us from trouble and surrounds us with deliverance, a way out. And then how does he finish? Selah, stop, pause, and rest in God's deliverance, the fact that God rescues us. So what do we see from this? Here's what we learn. There are moments of profound truth 
There are moments where the extraordinary character of God gets displayed at work in our lives. And here's the thing. Here's why we say a lot. We cannot skip over or run out or pretend like those moments where God forgives sin is just an ordinary moment. It's not an ordinary moment. God forgiving our sin, there's nothing ordinary about it. It's extraordinary. It cost him the life of his son. See, it's only when we stop and we say law that we let it sink in. So it's one thing to see kind of Selah on the page, right, in, in Psalms, right? It's another thing to see it at work in someone's life. Now, in Mark 1, we see this kind of rundown of what is essentially like Jesus' first day or first few days on the job, right? It's his first full day. So Jesus comes back from this 40-day fast, right, where he's tempted in the wilderness after his baptism, and now Jesus is ready to start his ministry. He's ready to start this thing and get this thing rolling. And so Mark 1 gives us this overview of what was Jesus' kind of first day on the job as the savior, of, a savior of, of humanity, right? It's like, here's day one. And here's what happens. It's a quick overview. You can go back and read it. It's crazy when you start to realize everything Jesus did in kind of the beginning of his ministry. First day, he calls some disciples. He teaches in the synagogue. He casts out demons. He heals, he heals Peter's mom. And in verse 32, here's how day one on the job of Savior of Humanity wrapped up. Mark 1.32 says this. That evening at sundown, they brought to Jesus all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And the whole city, the whole city gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now, if we had a day like that, where all these kind of, you're getting things started, it's day one, let's get things cranked up, let's get things rolling, there's a ton of momentum. If we had a day like that, there would be a big part of us that would want to get up the next day and run it back, right? Let's do it again. Let's fire it up again. Let's capitalize on the momentum that we, let's, let, let me just look at how productive Jesus was. He got a lot done in, in a short amount of time. And so we would think, let's get up and do the same thing again tomorrow. Let's get up and do the same, let's, let's fire this thing. Jesus, you're getting some attention. Jesus, you're, you're getting some mention. Jesus, you're getting some light. Jesus, the whole city was at the front door last night. Let's do it again. Here's what happens in verse 35. Jesus rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and he went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon, who we know is Peter, right, and those who were with him, they searched for Jesus, and they found him. They said, hey, everybody's looking for you, which you're like, duh, right? Of course they are. Jesus made a pretty big splash. And the disciples, right, his disciples are going, Jesus, like us, like, hey, let's capitalize on this momentum, man. Like, they're kind of like his PR people. It's like, hey, let's, let's, let's capitalize on this. Like, like, everybody was at the door last night. Like, all we have to do is just, like, set it up again. Let's do this thing again. And, and Jesus says this. Let's go on to, to the next town that I can preach there also because that's why I came. And that's Jesus being really nice going, no. No. Let's go on to some other places. And then Mark chapter 1 says this, then he went, out, went throughout all of Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. The, mor the morning after all of this went down, Jesus goes to a place that the Bible calls desolate. The Greek word is eremos. It's an eremos place, and it means this. It means solitary. It means lonely. It means uninhabited. It's an uninhabited place. And Mark tells us that he went there to pray. So Jesus, after his first crazy day at the office, what did he do? Selah. Instead of jumping back into the hustle and hurry, Jesus got up early while it was still dark, and he stopped. And you could probably imagine Jesus sitting 
down on that hillside and taking a big deep breath and then breathing it out. Leaning into the Holy Spirit that was working in him and through him. And we don't know what Jesus prayed. We don't know the conversation that he had with God. We don't know what they talked about. But here's what we do know. We know that God responded. We know that Jesus leaned in and Jesus asked his father and his father responded because whatever Jesus was asking his father, right, he listened because he knew where he needed to go next. Jesus knew where he needed to go next. So when Simon, when the disciples, when Peter and the disciples, they find him, hey, let's go, let's do this again. Jesus is like, nah, spend some time talking with my father. We need to move on. It's time to go. And this wasn't the only time Jesus did this. In Matthew 14, after Jesus feeds 5,000 people, Jesus gets the news that, that John the Baptist, his cousin, had been executed. Jesus sends his disciples on ahead on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus goes up on a hillside, again, lonely place. The Greek is Eremos place, a lonely place to pray, to Selah. And I love it because right after that is when Jesus walks on water. You talk about a rough day. Talk about a busy day, feeding 5,000. And really, at that, that number 5,000, it just counts the men. So there were probably twice that. Performing miracles, teaching. And then you get the news that, that your cousin, the guy that baptized you, was executed, was beheaded. That's a rough day. Jesus felt that, just like we do. And instead of trying to bury it or stuff it, he goes up on a hillside and he spends some time with his father. And I love that, again, it's just my brain, how my brain works. And as I think about the narrative of, of Jesus having the conversation with his father and looking out and seeing his disciples in the middle of the Sea of Galilee struggling, right? They were struggling. It talks about the, that they were, and, and most of the disciples were young, right? They were young dudes. So you imagine a bunch of like high school age guys struggling in the middle and Jesus listening to all this and I love the fact that Jesus is like, I'm going to get him, right? I'm going to walk out on the water. This is going to be hilarious, right? Like, I need a little pick-me-up. And I, think it's, I just think it's super funny that Jesus, he sailors, he goes up, he finds a lonely place, and he spends some time with his father. And then, after doing that, goes out and walks on water. In Luke 6, just before Jesus, from this crowd of followers, chooses 12 to be his apostles, changes their designation. You're not just disciples anymore, you're apostles. I'm, tra I'm training you to be my messengers, right? From this large group of followers, he chooses 12 to be his apostles. Luke tells us that Jesus, before, the night before he does, he does this, goes out on a mountainside and he prays all night. Selah. Hey, before I, before I take this move, before I take this step, I just need to catch my breath. I need to spend some time with my father. John 17, we're going to talk about this in a few weeks, right? Before, hours before Jesus is betrayed and arrested and tried, he goes to a garden to do what? To Selah. To spend some time with his father. Father, if there's any other way to do this that doesn't involve me getting nailed to a tree, let's do that. But if this is the only way, I'm in. We see Jesus does this over and over and over again. And now here's the deal. I know that each of us in our occupations and in our roles in life as parents, as students, as employees, I know that we think that our schedules and our days and our tasks are important. Me too. Right? They are. They are important. Right? But here's the thing. Let's just be real. No one in this room, no one in this room, it's not your job. Your job has never been, this is not on your job description, nor is it on mine, to save all of humanity from the power of sin and death and make relationship with an almighty God possible. That's not on anybody's job description, right? And if it is, we need to talk, okay? That was Jesus' job. That's what Jesus came to do. 
And I'll be honest with you, there's not a more important job than that one. So if Jesus can Selah in the middle of his job, so can you. So can you. One quote I read this week said this, to walk like Jesus is to walk with a slow and unhurried pace. Jesus' pace was deliberate and intentional, yet open to interruption. Hurry brings about the death of prayer, and it only impedes and spoils kingdom work. It never advances it. You know, one quote I read that I didn't throw into my notes, but I just remembered it this morning, was this. It's, it's really kind of in this hustle and hurry culture that we can all find success. Right? We can find success. I can find success as a pastor, and as, as I'm finding success of being a pastor, I can also, in hurry culture, be a complete and total failure when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus. Those two things can happen at the same time. You can find success in business. You can find success in growing your influence. You can find success in, in achieving status. You can find success in the midst of hurry culture in a lot of different ways. You could be successful on one hand and be a complete and total failure when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus. That is scary. Because what are we chasing? Jesus in Matthew 11 says this. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now these are some of like the most often quoted feel good verses in the Bible. Like, oh, Jesus, thank you. But when you read them in context, Jesus has had a full day of having to answer hard questions and dealing with conflict. I mean, Jesus just spent a, a ton of time, like, putting out woes against things, right? And it's important for us to know that. In the midst of all this conflict, Jesus, he's had a, he's had a full day of people trying to trap him and trick him and ask him, like, trick questions and, and then having to deal with lots of conflict. Jesus has a full day, and this is kind of how he ends this moment, by looking at people going, hey, listen, come to me. If you're tired, come to me. And it's important for us to know what he's talking about when he says that, it, that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. A yoke in that day was a device that connected two animals together, right? It put them under the control of whoever the plowman was, right? So typically you'd use a yoke to, to take two oxen, and now you, have, now, now you have a plow that's two ox horsepower, right, or ox power, right? Like that kind of thing. It was used to connect farm animals together. But here's the thing. Rabbis, teachers in this day, which Jesus was a rabbi, he was a teacher, they had a teaching that they would refer to as their yoke, right? It was the yoke of a rabbi. And that teaching was the teaching that people sat under. So when you sat under a rabbi's yoke, when you wore a rabbi's yoke, right, when a rabbi says, where am I yoke, he's basically saying, where am I teaching? My teaching about your life, my teaching about who God is and who you are, wear that, now, in this day, the yoke of the Pharisees, the religious people, it was soul-crushing. It was crushing people's souls. It was built on religion and rules and not relationship. They said things like, you should, you better, you better not, right? A lot of finger-pointing, things like that. Just like the yoke of, like, hustle and hurry culture right now is soul-crushing. Because when we center that yoke, when we wear the yoke of, of hustle and hurry culture, it says, you have to. You have to work. Over time, you have to put in extra hours. You have to show up at everything. You must. 
You must do whatever the boss says. You must do the thing. You must do the things it takes to. It, you you better. You must, and it's soul crushing. And so Jesus, again, like we say a lot, Jesus puts two deals on the table. Jesus says, "Listen, you can go this way. You can sit under the yoke of the Pharisees and try to perform and try to do all the rules. You can sit under the yoke of hurry culture and do everything to perform your way into more and more success the whole time while failing at being a disciple of Jesus. One of these ways is going to make you weary." One of these ways is going to be a struggle. One of these ways you're going to labor under it. But the other way, Jesus says, here's another deal. It's different. My yoke is easy. And here's what that means. It doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy and work out the way you want. What it means is this. It fits you. When Jesus says, my yoke is easy, he says, living under my teaching, the way I talk about life, right, what we find in the scripture, the with God life, he says, that's how you're supposed to live. This life is the life that you were meant for. And then he says, my burden is light, which again, doesn't mean that, that in the with God life that things won't be hard or things won't get heavy. We all know that we deal with heavy things in life. We deal with heavy things emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and physically. But what this means is this, when Jesus says, my burden is light, is it means that the, in the with God life, the ways of Jesus, they're not oppressive. Jesus is teaching, living the way of Jesus is not going to crush your soul, it's going to free your soul. It's not going to drain your life, it's going to give you life. Let me be real. Any other way, any other way of life, wearing any other yoke other than Jesus's, it does not fit. You are not meant for that. Any other way other than Jesus, it will crush you. It's only a matter of time. And so here's how I want us to wrap up today, right? I'm not asking if you're going to find some time to slow down in Selah this week. I'm asking you when and how. So I'm going to give you some practical things, right? I want to give you some ways to do this. I'm going to put a few different options up here on the screen. So here's the deal. Take out your phone. The way we kind of take notes here is we take pictures of our screen. So uh, if you want to do that, or if you want to write it down, if you want to go old school and use like a pen and a piece of paper, you can do that, right? So but I'm going to put some things up here that I, I want you to try, okay, to slow down this week. Spring break, you're the remnant. Maybe you're not going anywhere, but it's spring break. It's a good excuse to slow down. Number one, all right, here you go. Pick the longest checkout line at the grocery store. You know, you know what you do. You go, you scan the aisles and go, oh, there's that one, right? And you look and see how many items are. And so I want you to find the line that's got like 20 people in it and their carts, like they, they've got like two carts, right, full of stuff. It's going to take you half an hour just to get up to the checkout lady. Do that, right? That will make you slow down. I, so that's, that's number one, okay? Take a picture of that if you want to do this. Here's the second one. I did this yesterday. <laughs> It's crazy. Drive the speed limit everywhere you go for one full day. Y'all, if you don't think that our culture is, is just inundated with hustle and hurry mentality. Yesterday, I drove the speed limit all day. I stayed in the right-hand lane, and I came to a complete stop at every stop sign. I got flipped off like five different times. Uh, I drove the Waterson. It's like taking your life into your hands, right? Like, but again, just try this. Just try this. If for anything, you'll see how fast everybody's moving. It's really difficult, right? But try that one. The, the third thing is this. Parent your phone, right? Parents in the room, you know, you're in charge of your kids. You be, you be in charge of your phone. The, the joke that I always say is I go where my phone tells me to go. I do what my phone tells me to do. And it's a joke, but it's also kind of true, right? My phone leads me. My phone tells me when I have meetings and when I need to go places. So today, I'm telling you, parent your phone. You be in charge of your phone this week. 
put your phone to bed early and make it sleep in. Like you're going to bed at eight o'clock tonight, phone, and you're not getting up till nine o'clock tomorrow, okay? Put your phone to bed early, make it, don't let it interrupt you, right? That's something we're working on with our kids right now. Our kids, like when they have a thought that comes into their head, they're like, hey, and we're like, whoop, don't interrupt people, that's rude, right? You can turn notifications off on your phone. You can make them all go away. You can actually make it be silent, believe it or not. Don't let your phone interrupt you. If you're doing something, if you are having a, a meal with your family or you're playing a game with friends, whatever it is, Turn your phone off and put it in a drawer. Put it on do not disturb mode, right? Don't let your phone interrupt you. You tell your phone what it can and cannot do, right? We all talk about we have smartphones. It's not hard to make a smartphone a dumb phone, right? It's not. You can turn a lot of things off to where the one thing it does, believe it or not, is make and receive phone calls. (gasps) Crazy. Remember that day? Remember those days when that's what a phone did? You just called someone on it, right? So... That's another challenge, parent your phone. Next one is this, find an Aramos place. Find a place that's quiet and spend at least an hour there. Now, couples, spouses, families, let me just say this, give your spouse this opportunity. If this is something that someone's going, listen, I need to do this, like I need, I wanna do this, dads, watch the kids, and you're not babysitting your own kids, okay? Like I'm babysitting, you're not, they're your kids, okay? Let your wife do this. Watch the kids for an hour or two or three. Same. Guys, get out to a, go for a walk, go for a hike, find a quiet place. Go up on a hillside, sit in a, take an Eno, go sit in a hammock, do whatever, go sit on a bench, take time, take time during, and this is something I've started doing here, is when I find myself in, in, in places where, you know, I'm, I'm feeling stressed or I just am trying to think something through, instead of just sitting in my office and thinking about it, I'll just take a walk around the building on the outside. I'll just walk the parking lot or I'll walk up the hill to the Pepperidge Farm place because it smells like goldfish up there. It's fantastic. <laughs> just, just take a walk. But find an Aramos place and spend some time there. And then the last one is this. Set your alarm 30 minutes early. Set your alarm 30 minutes before you normally would set it. Get up and spend time with Jesus. What would it look like? What would it look like if you eased into your day after having spent time with Jesus instead of parachuting into your day like it was D-Day, which for some of us it feels like. I mean, it feels like the start of my morning sometimes feels like the opening scene in Saving Private Ryan. We're just trying to survive. What would that look like? What would it look like if you picked the longest checkout line in the grocery store and in that long, long line, you prayed for the people in front of you even though you don't know their names? What would it look like if you drove the speed limit everywhere you went and every car that passed you, you thank Jesus for who that, whoever that person was? What would it look like if you shut your phone off and in that time you're spending with family, you're able to, to talk about what God's doing in your life or their life. You're able to hear what, what people are, are thinking and praying through. What would it look like if you went to an Aramos place, a lonely place for an hour and all you took was your Bible, you turned your phone away, you left your phone in your car, you took your Bible with you and you just spent time letting God speak into your heart. There are more resources available for us Back on that wall, the Connect and Grow wall, I put just some, some resources of books that I read this week and, and articles and podcasts to listen to. There are great ways and great tools available to us to go, look, we, we can't keep living like that. There's a different way to live that Jesus offers us, and we get to take him up on that deal because of the cross. 
So if you don't know that, if you don't know what Jesus has accomplished for you, Jesus came and lived a perfect life and died a death that we deserve to set us free from the power of sin and death. He gave us what we need and not what we deserve. And three days after they buried him in a tomb, he came out of that tomb alive, removing the power of sin and death for us from ever, allowing us to be in a relationship with God. We call this the gospel. If you, haven't, if you haven't chosen to trust that yet, today you have an opportunity to do that. Today, you can take Jesus up on this deal. You can take Jesus up on the deal to step into the with God life. I'll be down front. If you wanna pray or accept Jesus, I would love to, to chat with you about that. If, if today you just need prayer over things that are going on in your life, I'll be down front over here. Nick, one of our elders, will be on this side and Justin's in the back. You can, you can pray with any of us. We would love to, to pray with you. Today you want to join this church. You want to be a part of this church family. We're a mess, but we're fun. We'd love for you to be a part of this church. Let me pray for us and we'll worship. Jesus, you're good. We love you. And Father, we see, we see in Jesus' rhythm this idea of resting in you. And Father, I pray that right now we would just do that, that we would stop. And that maybe even in this moment we would breathe out and in that breath out comes all the stuff that's trapped in our hearts that we haven't shared with you, that we haven't confessed. And Father, right here in this moment, we would lean into your presence that's here in this building just like it is everywhere else. God, that's the cool thing about your spirit is it doesn't just stay here and wait to see us again next Sunday. That we'd lean in and we'd open our hands up to expect from you. Father, we would ask you to get involved in our lives, ask you to get involved in what we're dealing with. And then, Lord, right here in this moment, as we sing and worship, that we would listen for your voice. For Jesus, we love you, and we pray. Amen. We stand and sing this.